Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Uh, last week, if you were here, Monty introduced a new sermon series uh, on the life of David. Uh, by the way, preschoolers, I'm a little late on that, but Colleen's standing over here waiting for you. Uh, our, our series that we're going to be going through is on the life of David, uh, called After God's Own Heart. That's the description that we have of David. And the question we need to ask ourselves as we go through this series is, how can we live the same way as David, so that we can be men and women after God's own heart? Uh, by the way, there is a bookmark uh, in the, in the back here at the table. Uh, if you didn't receive one yet, be sure to pick one up as you leave. It has a daily reading plan to go along with this sermon series uh, uh, from 1 Samuel. So um, hopefully uh, you can follow along and be prepared for uh, each Sunday as we open God's Word together. Uh, this week's sermon text is from 1 Samuel 16. And I won't be reading the whole text, but uh, you can uh, certainly follow along as we do read. Remember the prayer of Hannah that we talked about last week. Uh, a question about that prayer is, what kind of people does God honor, even enthroned, as she says? We find the answer in 1 Samuel 2, verse 8 where it says, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has, given, has them inherit a throne of honor. The poor and needy. They would have been the outcast of society. They didn't live in a culture where they had any hope of honor. In fact, the, the fact that they were poor, the fact that they were needy, convinced others in their society that they had somehow deserved this, that they had done something wrong to bring God's judgment down upon them. And, and Hannah says just the opposite. She says God is the one who elevates these people. Only God could do these things for them. Only He could make them kings and queens princesses and princes. What comes to mind when you think of a king? Maybe, maybe a gold crown, fancy robes trimmed in ermine, uh, unlimited wealth, absolute authority. In, in many cultures, the king's word is law. The king, in short, is the most important person in the land. But how did God expect a king to ask? Israel's wrestling with that. And we're going to see that King Saul wasn't the best example. But Moses had told them in the book of Deuteronomy, he had told them hundreds of years before Israel even had a king. He had said, this is how a king should behave. And so we, we turn to Deuteronomy 17. Uh, <clears throat> Verses 14 through 20. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, 
and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. Not because they were wise, but because they were pagan foreigners. Um, he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites, and, then, and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. So first of all, the people were to appoint the king the Lord God chose. He was to make the choice. And once installed, the king was told to, to write out on a scroll, it sounds like by hand himself, uh, you know, when you write something yourself, you, you tend to remember it better. So write it out, and he said, uh, uh, read that copy of God's law every day in order to learn to revere and follow God's commands. And the king was then not to consider himself to be better than his fellow Israelites, which again would be the opposite of what would be expected uh, of a king. Now, last week, uh, Monty introduced us to Saul, the first king of Israel. And Saul was king for 42 years. But the question is, how did he measure up to what God had said he expected of a king over his people? Saul was handsome and tall, which made him attractive and might have been impressive to some people. But that seems to be the sum of his qualifications for the job. Saul's life, as we read through it in these few chapters of 1 Samuel, Saul's life was tragic. But it didn't have to be that way. The outcome was the result of the path Saul chose. And he chose his own path rather than choosing the path of obedience to God. There were problems in Saul's reign from the very beginning. He made war against the Philistines, though he was greatly outnumbered. Uh, the Philistines, were told, had 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and infantry as numerous as the sand on the seashore. That means there were so many you couldn't count them. Uh, Saul and Jonathan, on the other hand, had 4,000 troops. And the army of Israel began to lose hope. They were afraid. Some hid themselves and others deserted. Samuel had told Saul to wait until he arrived in order to petition God for victory. 
And when Samuel didn't come exactly according to the schedule that Saul had set, Saul took matters into his own hands. He offered sacrifices to God, which was not, by the way, in his job description. And Samuel arrived just as Saul had finished this act, and the smell of smoke was still in the air. And this is what he said uh, in Samuel, 1 Samuel 13, uh, verses 11 and following. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling a mitmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. And I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord, the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Notice what Saul said in response to, to Samuel. He said, I thought, I felt compelled. Saul's actions really do seem reasonable. Samuel pointed out that they were foolish because he did not keep the Lord's commands. He was not a man after God's heart. But Saul repeatedly throughout his life chose to do what was right in his own eyes. Even though he represented a new era in Israelite history, the era of the kings, he lived by the mantra of the past the period of the judges. Remember, Monty mentioned this to us last week as well. The time of the judges is when everybody did as he saw fit. And we see what the result of that is. But Saul was the king, wasn't he? Isn't the king's word law? Doesn't the king get to make the decisions? Couldn't he do whatever he pleased? That may have been true of the kings around them not God's expectation for the king of Israel. When you have time, take a look at the records of the kings of Israel and Judah as found in Chronicles in your, in your Old Testament. Each king is introduced following the same formula. His name, the length of his reign, and an assessment of his reign to assessing his reign, there were only two options. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord or he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's all that mattered. Did he listen to God or did he not listen to God? Throughout his reign, it became apparent track Saul was headed down what he thought was right instead of seeking will. 
15 of 1 Samuel, we, have, we hear God declaring his judgment against the Amalekites. He told Saul to attack and totally destroy them and all that belonged to them. Nothing was to be held back. Some versions of scripture use the term uh, devoting these pagan peoples and their goods to God. The idea they are irrevocably given over to God, which results basically they are obliterated, annihilated, totally wiped out. They are burned up as a sacrificial offering to God with nothing reserved for anyone else. But it tells us there, Saul and the army spared Agag, king of the Amalekites, and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Well, doesn't that make sense? Doesn't that seem right? Uh, they, these animals they reserved could be very useful to them. And they could always, at some point later, be offered as sacrifices to God. Doesn't that seem like the wise thing to do? Be careful as you answer that. Because you may find yourself thinking exactly the same way Saul was. What's wrong with this? But the important thing is not to do what seems logical or reasonable. It's to do what God has commanded. And because Saul repeatedly disobeyed God, God re rejected Saul as king and took his kingdom from him. And he gave it to another better than he was. And that brings us finally to our text for today, 1 Samuel 16, where we see Samuel anointing a new king over Israel in preparation for taking over the kingdom upon the eventual death of Saul. At this point, we may be thinking, maybe it's not so wise to appoint another king. The first king doesn't show us a very good record. And we know God warned his people against a king. And, and, and he was offended that they asked for a king. But we see Samuel anointing a new king. Uh, and... You know, we've already got a king. We've already gone down that road. So, turning back now, but it is possible to start over. And that's what God directs Samuel to do. In obedience to the command of God, Samuel went to the household of Jesse and Bethlehem to anoint the next king. And we're going to look at 1 Samuel 16, verse 6. <clears throat> when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliah and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. 
The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. The expected choice would be that the eldest son would be chosen. And, and if he, some reason for some reason, could not serve, then they would go down the line through, you know, chronologically, through the children. That would be what you would expect to happen. That's what happened here. But that expectation, uh, what kind of hope would you have if to be picked as king if you were number, you know, son number eight or even son number five? He doesn't even name the sons past the first three. Uh, quite a bit's been made lately about the rivalry um, between um, Princes William and Harry in, in England. And now that their father, Charles III, is king of England, uh, Prince William is the heir apparent to the throne, while Harry is number five. His whole life, he spared. Uh, his very birth was designed to provide an alternative, a, a just-in-case. But he never had much hope of being on the throne, and that hope grows less and less with each passing generation. So everyone thought similarly in Bethlehem that day. But after the parade of Jesse's seven sons, Samuel concluded, nor has the Lord chosen this one. But God had a plan. And in God's plan, the last would become first. Samuel was wise enough to know that his opinion or the opinion of Jesse or Jesse's neighbors didn't matter. Samuel knew that the choice was God's. And as an afterthought, Samuel inquired if there were any more sons. And as an afterthought, Jesse said, yes, there was still the young David. David. 
who was tending his father's sheep. Uh, Jesse, you haven't? Yeah, there is one there in the field. It's almost as if David isn't even worthy of their consideration. He's always the caboose. He's always the spare. But Samuel sent for him immediately, and God told Samuel to anoint him. This is the one. Whom would you have chosen? Would you have even thought to consider David? No one expected David to be the choice. He was, after, after all, the youngest of the lot. Eliab, Abinadab, Shammah, and the other three, who were even remembered by name, were not qualified. Samuel knew he must choose the one the Lord had chosen. He had to choose to be obedient to God. He was to choose the one with a heart for God. I think it's interesting that while Samuel was not to consider appearance or height as the criteria for choosing, notice what it says. David is introduced glowing with having a fine appearance and handsome features. While those aren't the criteria for choosing, it's almost like they were frosting on the cake. It's almost as if God has a sense of humor. Just so you know, these outward characteristics don't count, but I'll throw them in anyway as a bonus. Uh, they didn't hurt David's situation in any way, but when it came to David's ability to rule well, they were irrelevant. What mattered was his heart, and he lived after God's own heart. The remainder of chapter 16 gives us an example of David's heart. Even though Saul's kingdom had been ripped away from him, and David was anointed the new king. David was willing to just bide his time, to wait and to serve until the right time came for him to be king. The Spirit of God departed from Saul, and he came under the influence, we learn, of an evil spirit and those around him. And to combat this, Saul sought someone who could use some music therapy to ease his suffering. How Saul's servant described He said, he is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man. And the most important thing, and the Lord is with him. And David, the new and coming king, entered the surface of Spirit of God within him to play the lyre and to bring some peace to Saul's troubled heart. We'll see later how Saul became murderous toward David. And David steadfastly refused to harm or dishonor Saul because he knew God had anointed him. It should come as no surprise that the key verse in this episode is chapter 16, verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. 
people look at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. This principle of inside and outside is so very important when it comes to our relationship with God. In fact, it's at the core of the the new covenant he promised to make with his people. Let's take a peek at some other passages in Scripture that, that uphold this same principle. First of all, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and following. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. We read about this covenant in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36. It says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees, careful to keep my laws. God's concern is for the inner person, not the shallow external that we often value. Who, in 29, reminds us of seeking God's favor through a transformed heart, changed from the inner. This is what Paul says. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is one inwardly. And circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Their idea that the important thing is pleasing God and receiving his favor. In 1 3, 3 and 4, the apostle encourages us to give attention to the inner spirit in order to value what God values. He says, Your beauty should not come from outward adornments such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. Jesus, in his ministry, challenged the leaders of the Jews about their hypocrisy in Matthew 23. Hypocrisy, the, the, the word itself means to put on a mask. So hypocrisy is like covering up what's really with something that's beautiful, a, a, an image we want to present. It makes us appear one way on the outside, but it is deceiving because it does not match our true identity. This is what Jesus said. Woe to you. Teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. 
Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to be but on the inside you are full of Don't judge a book by its cover. Meaning, don't, don't make assessments of others based on outward appearances. Isn't that exactly what today's text is about? Scotswoman Susan Boyle was 40 years old when she auditioned on Brit Got Talent in 2009. When she appeared on stage and said she wanted to become a professional singer, but no one ever gave her a chance, you could hear the audience stifling laughter. Age-wise, she was far beyond the typical demographic of the other would-be star contestants. She was not glamorous in any sense of the word. Simple dress and shoes, hair askew, no makeup. She had always believed herself to be brain damaged due to oxygen deprivation at birth. Only later, she learned that she was not brain damaged, but autistic, very high intelligence. She had never married, devoting herself to her cats, caring for her aged mother, in her church, and deeds of kindness toward others. Susan Boyle, was not to be deterred, however. She had suffered at the hands of her entire life. She said, I know what they were thinking, but why should it matter as long as I can sing? It's not a beauty contest. Oh, many times it is. I'll admit, saw her walk across the stage, that he pegged her as another wannabe singer who wasn't very good. Then she opened her mouth and sang the opening bars of I Dreamed a Dream. And the voice of an angel silenced all her critics. Cal is known for telling contestants that at AGT auditions that these auditions can be In Boyle's case, that she instead had changed the show from that time forward by redefining expectations. In her first year of stardom, Boyle made nearly $9 million. She went on to release 10 studio albums and became a household name. Today, at age 62, her net worth is estimated at $40 million, and she still is in Scotland. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. On one passage is about not judging others by outward appearances. But I believe there's another lesson for us. And the lesson for us today 
is that we need to examine ourselves and to determine, are we being pleasing to God by having a heart like his? The ultimate God-ordained king from David's line is Jesus Christ. He was pleasing to his father and obedient to his commands. He had a pure heart that led him to seek his father's will. And likewise, when we follow after him, he gives us a transformed heart by his Holy Spirit.